Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc. Today, we're happy to welcome Mikhail, partner at Northzone, a venture capital fund shaped by lives as entrepreneurs and investors. He leads Northzone's investments focusing on SaaS, marketplaces, healthcare, and AI. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving us a review, and following the European VC on LinkedIn. Michiel, welcome to the European VC podcast. It's super nice to have you here. How is everything today with you? It is great to be here, and uh, I'm looking forward to talking to you, especially given your very sort of specialist uh, sort of focus. I hope we uh, we get to geek out together. I was about to say because you think we're nerds, <laughs> <laughs> aren't we? Aren't we all? Yeah, <laughs> we're, we just, are, we're just we lucky are. that we live in a time where being a nerd is actually cool. <laughs> yeah, it's really it's it's gotten quite cool lately, and I'm saying the same thing to my wife when we look at our son, and and she's. Like when she sees him play ball and she says, he's never going to be a good footballer, honey. And I'm like, ah, that's not what he needs to be anymore. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> this couldn't this couldn't be more timely, Mikhail. Recently, you guys announced your, and if I remember correctly, your 10th fund, 1 billion. That that's, that's really easy to remember, right? 10 what? Um, yeah. So I'm excited, obviously, about that in itself. But if I'm being honest, more about, you know, the learnings that you've gone through and Orson has gone through in, in that period of time. But before deep diving into that, I think it's always nice to start with, you know, give us a quick rundown of who's Michiel and how the hell did you end up where you are now? Yeah, yeah. My, my life, is, it's, it's been interesting because it's been a, uh, a whole set of random events. And I often get sort of approached by former entrepreneurs wanting to be VCs, like, how do I do that? And I really tumbled into it. So <laughs> it's a, I don't think I have a necessarily a recipe for it, but I would say my career uh, mostly falls into two phases. The, the, the phase before I was 40, when I think I always strove to do the biggest adventure I could find. And it had me starting doing physics long ago. And then after a small stint of a, being a consultant, going to the US for an MBA and really falling in love with entrepreneurship and seeing what my classmates were doing and how diverse and how exciting and how sort of unbound in ambition that was. So I spent all of my second year coming up with an idea, partnering up with a, with a, with a classmate. And on graduation, we moved to uh, to California to start our company. And you know this was mid 1999, so it was uh, peak uh, sort of uh, dot com bubble. But we were doing B two B software, which already had fallen somewhat out of favor. So. I pitched to 104 VCs before I managed to raise money. And I, you know, terrible, terrible, terrible uh, experience. So hopefully that makes me nicer as a, as a, as a VC myself, <laughs> knowing how terrible it can be to sit across from so many people judging you. Uh, but then when we did and we went off to the races, we built AI software mimicking the behavior of salespeople. It was super exciting. We got Ed Feigenbaum, who was a leading light uh, at Stanford at the time. Um, uh, as our advisor, uh, we had actually one of the advisors of the, at the same time, emerging team from Google, Rajiv Modwani was one of our advisors. He always kept saying, why are these guys going so much faster than you are? Um, but Bill uh, built up a, cra a crazy good team. And then after we reached about 50 people and about uh, 50 clients, we uh, sold the company to shopping.com because we were helping people find what to buy. They were helping people find where to buy it. And then I became a part of the management team there. And it was a super wild ride because we had raised 140 million, which at the time was still a lot of money. And we spent 
it going after Amazon and hope that we could beat them. And then when we had spent 125, we had to look in the mirror and go like, shit, this isn't working. What's really going on? And we found we were an arbitrage and not a destination site, if we were honest. And then we took hard action. And this was, of course, already in the crisis. So very comparable to, to, to now. We fired two thirds of our people and we um, killed 11 of our 12 projects, including the, my baby. And But then in a year and a half time, we went, because the arbitrage was so powerful, from 9 million in revenue, losing 25 million, to 100 million in revenue with 25 million in profit. And that led to an IPO and post-IPO acquisition by eBay. So super impressive to see what the power is of, of tech and, and seen all phases of, of that. Then I went to join a pharmaceutical company as the uh, chief of staff to the CEO in a big turnaround and then got sent to Latin America to run the uh, operations there, which was super fun, super exciting, very different from doing tech. And then uh, after we got acquired, kind of moved back to Europe and started another company there in, in London with the backing of Excel. And it was at the time where Rocket Internet was very strong. So we did a copycat of one of the, 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 the subscription e-commerce plays. We thought even for a while, hey, maybe we should set up an incubator uh, and then realize that, hey, that's a dumb idea because no entrepreneur is going to trust you anymore <laughs> with their ideas if you go and sit there and copy everything. So when that company didn't get the traction we wanted, uh, we mutually decided to fold it. And the nice thing is I had already started working with the team, sitting in on Monday meetings and basically through the back door became an investor. And I'd never planned that, but it was amazing. I really loved it. Smart people, exciting things to do. And so spent six years at Excel first as a principal, then as a partner, you know, working on a whole range of, of, of deals, including three deals together with Dorso. And so got the team, know the team really well there. And so a little over six years ago, uh, decided to move from Excel to Norsone and been a partner there ever since. Uh, moved from uh, London, then to Berlin, and most recently back to Amsterdam. Where you're originally from, right? Amsterdam. Yes, I, I am. Yeah. I think you, you studied in Delft, right? I did, yeah. I have one of the funnest nights of my life in Delft, so I'll share that off the record one day with you. Sounds I good. Have. I would love to hear that. Yeah, Delft it was a cool place. Sorry, Andreas, go on. Now, I was actually about to say that that, that journey of going from London to Berlin to Amsterdam, uh, I wonder if if there's a story of VC in there, uh, in the sense that in the beginning, everything was in London. Then we saw Berlin starting to grow up. Then you could move to Berlin, being at one of the big firms. And now VC is truly pan-European. And, and for that reason, you would suddenly move from, from Berlin to Amsterdam. Is there that story uh, in that? Absolutely. And it's, it's also partially the story of moving from Excel, where everyone is centralized and sitting in one place, and Norzone, where we from the get-go have been distributed as a team. Uh, and, uh, and, and so one of the main reasons to join Norzone was to the ability to move away from London. And then as to, as to your point, Berlin was a very logical uh, location, given that we you know, had a lot of really good investments there already, given that the ecosystem was emerging and energetic, but, but also waiting for, for, for VCs that were neither purely local or regional nor international and just flying in from, from, from London. So it was good to be there on the ground. And, and you're right, I would say, especially obviously helped by the pandemic, but even before that, the splintering of the European ecosystem has continued in the last four years. And therefore, yeah, I can be in Amsterdam. The result is I am three days a week on the road, but yeah. I can be in Amsterdam. There's interesting deal flow here. But the, if I would be in Berlin or London, also, you know, 20% or 40% of my time would be outside. So yes, it, yeah. I think it is, a, it is, it is mimicked by where, where the ecosystem is. Ah, that's, that's really cool. Uh, I'd also 
love to just touch on another trend that we have in, in European VC. And, and that's, of course, the trend of, of operators slash founders, entrepreneurs turned VC. You yeah. have quite some experience to, to talk on the back of now. Quite often we talk to VCs that are very new and fresh and then come in, mm. in with the brand of being entrepreneurs turned VC. And there, you know, the jury is re really still out <laughs> whether that will, will turn out to be a good thing or a bad thing. And I think in the U.S. ecosystem, you know, they've, they've had many operators turn VC for a long, long time. Um, but there's also maybe, if I may say so, a bit more nuanced discussion there, or at least there's more people who have gone the path from entrepreneurs to VC and then back again because they realized that VC was not the path for me. Um, but that we don't have as much in Europe, and it's not something we talk much about. Because I'd love to hear your reflections on that journey and what did you take with you as an entrepreneur and what did you have to leave behind? Yeah, you know, I think I think to start with that and to, to do also, so many people ask me, when are you going to go back and do a real job <laughs> and start a company again? <laughs> and and it is true. It's like I I do miss the 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 idea of living something a hundred percent and uh, you know e eating, sleeping, and breathing a a single topic and a single company and really building firsthand. Uh, and as opposed to many people, I really love managing people. <laughs> and I get to do obviously none of these things while in VC. Um, but at the same time, the, the luxury of being involved with so many companies at the same time and being able to be part of the journey from very early to, to, to late and have multiple paths and kind of clone yourself is, is in a way a very great sort of compensation for not being single-mindedly driving a single thing. Um, and I, I would say being a successful entrepreneur is way more fun than being a VC, but being a struggling entrepreneur is way less fun. <laughs> the longer you are in venture, the more you go like, yeah, the, the likelihood of the numbers are that you're more on the struggling yeah. side. So so I, I sort of comfort myself that obviously we're also build, building our own path as a VC company. And so there is company building involved in that. And yes, we're not gonna go overnight to 600 people. Uh, but we are always strategically figuring out where should we be, where is sort of the next the next way of doing this job, what kind of people should we hire, you know, where should we, we spend our time, et cetera. So there's a little bit of that in there. And then to the point of being a good or a bad uh, investor as a, as a as a as a as a former founder, I think what you what what you bring and what 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 helps is having had that super painful journey and realizing that even in the most successful companies the path to success is not a straight line from A to B. And therefore you approach, I would say founders a lot more from the empathy, hey, what you do is really hard and let's together figure out how things can be better. I think you also have a better sort of appreciation of some of the struggles of how lonesome it can be to be a founder, uh, how you need to develop, how you need to develop your people. So I think that you, you, you bring stuff to the table that is interesting and, and attractive. On the other hand, I think, I, and I tell everyone, that starts investing who comes from a, from an operator background. The first thing you need to realize is you're always too much of an optimist as a founder and you always see solutions. So you, in the beginning, you start seeing deals or companies and you go like, oh, this is great. If only they would do X, Y, and Z, this would be a great company. And then you go, you have to kind of take this, this step and say, well, either they haven't seen that yet, which is not a good signal, or they haven't been able to do it, or they might not agree with you. <laughs> so the fact that you see a call it a solution between brackets uh, is is a, is a, is a bad sort of criteria to kind of have as a, as an investor. So I think 
most people who come from the operating side need to develop a little bit of, 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 of that sort of hesitation. And then secondly, is you have the too much of a tendency to say, hey, I can step in and help. And obviously, entrepreneurs expect VCs to help. And we, you know, we pride ourselves on being, call it smart capital and, 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 and be there. But you have to understand where you can create real leverage. And that is way more often in connecting founders to the right people or helping them hire the right person. I, I mean, I remember with the early companies I was invested in, sitting down for long, long times and looking at the BI and coming up with hypotheses and blah, 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 blah. And maybe you can help a bit there, but that's not sustainable, right? And so therefore helping them find a much better head of BI is, is a much more sustainable solution. So I think figuring out where can you create your leverage, be approachable, yeah. but hands-off enough and, and do really that sort of that high level board level stuff where you say, for example, to the founder, I see you always take the road that is most sort of conservative. Why are you doing that, right? Much rather than weigh in super heavily on a nitty gritty kind of decision. Yeah. And I guess when you say find your leverage, I, that is also very much worse the firm's leverage, right? Because as you said, you as an individual could come with a great mindset around BI and so on, but that's not something that that Northzone or, or Axel can build as a as an in-house competence in all their partners, and that's where we really. But but you have a brand and and, and recognition now in the ecosystem that when Northzone partner reaches out and says we've got this startup, then you know you've got the ear of most people. Um, yeah. So there's also something to that, and that gets us into the next thing I'd love to ask you about if 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 you were to say why is it that 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 founders pick Northzone because and and, and why is it that you think that that you because everyone is competing for deals in the end, right? And yes, Northzone is an amazing brand and you can get into many things, but you're also in the deals that everyone have recognized <laughs> quite often. It's not, it's not, it's not deals that, 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 that don't have other VCs around the table as well. So I'd love to hear your reflections on that and, and how you stay uh, you know, current and, and, and relevant to founders. Yeah, no, I think that's, 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 that's good. And it's, it's a very sort of nuanced and multi-tiered kind of thing, of course, that, that is there. And I, and I think... I want to sort of kind of pick up on three layers that, that makes sense to me. I think the first layer is, in a way, venture capital capital is a very sort of cumulative uh, profession. It's very sort of, a, if you if you can create sort of virtuous circles where if you've done well in previous deals and like you said, you have worked with companies that people recognize in that matter, if those founders speak highly of you and see you as impactful and uh, decent, <laughs> um, then and if you as a as a venture firm have managed to sort of develop the right kind of tools and ways of of, of helping companies and then balancing sort of new and old work, et cetera, et cetera, that gives you an unfair advantage of winning new deals, right? And as of everyone, I always rec recommend to to founders to say, hey, talk to the people we've worked with, uh, and then I also put the emphasis, call both people where the companies went amazingly well and. You know, everyone wants to talk to Daniel Egg or to, to Hanno, um, but also talk to companies where things have gone wrong and ask those founders, how do you behave? How have they behaved around around the table? And so I think I think that's that's the first layer. So they think about this as a long term play. Think about cumulatively what you want to achieve and then trust in investing in, in doing these things well, that it pays off over time. Then I would say the second level is sort of the firm wide approach, culture. What do you want to stand for? And there, the individual investor is a, is a sort of the account manager into the firm. And 
I think we've kind of perfected that system for relatively well. So if I work with one of my portfolio companies and they need advice on how to deal with partnerships, I know which of my partners has had a bunch of portfolio companies where that was important and relevant and link them to it. Or we have our talent, of course, of course our talent partner who can do amazing things for companies. And so finding both the, 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 for the big questions, how do you do it? And for the small inputs, kind of an efficient way of a knowledge base of how to sort of make sure that the firm that like you said is, is way bigger than the individual that you bring that full power to bear with the, uh, with the entrepreneur. And then I think our very special sort of brand or, or um, DNA around this is that we are um, uh, especially sort of uh, first and foremost, a human centric VC firm. And it comes from our Nordic roots and it comes from the fact that we've always, you know, wanted transparency and sort of scrappiness and approachability and sort of woven that in to our concepts in the way we've hired people, the way we've, you know, dealt with our entrepreneurs, even when there's sort of bad news. And, uh, and I think that, that that's sort of people like that and people, you know, see you then as partners and in the trenches with them and all those sort of board members around the table. And then the last thing is sort of each one needs to find their individual sort of strength, their individual approach and signature and way. And so we, I think also, again, by having always been a distributed firm, uh, have from very early on left room for a lot of different individu individualities. And if you look at the partners around the table, we're all very different. And we encourage when with our uh, more emerging investors that they find their own tone and style. And so I have my tone and style of sort of going deep in the nitty, nitty gritty and nerding out with founders and, you know, showing my vision of their company and not only listening and sort of interrogating them on how they see stuff. And yeah, my personal style of trying to win then is by being relevant and knowledgeable. Uh, and that's an also, you know, as a board member, you have to then come through on those things and it can't be, oh, you know what, you win the deal with X and then the reality is Y, because then you go back to the first layer of you're not building up the consistent uh, consistent brand. If I may, I'd like to kind of take us to the next topic that I'd love to talk with you about. As I started off saying, you know, 10th fund, 1 billion. So that means there's a lot of learnings there from fund to fund. Um, and, you know, if I, if I recall correctly, fund 10 follows very much previous strategy, but there are, there are some small slight differences there. Um, I think there's an op ops fund kind of dynamics in there as well that that's quite quite new. So I'd love to have you obviously kind of expand on it, what it is and, and, and everything. But I think more interestingly, the changes, why are they happening? You know, what are you guys seeing as a firm? What are you thinking and yep. what are you betting on? Yeah, and, and I think uh, to me, the, the funniest thing is venture capital is working day in and day out with very innovative kind of companies and founders but as an industry itself is relatively static. <laughs> so I think we've been, been lucky, uh, again, going back to the founding where we had these people with very different personalities bound together sort of around a common culture, leaving each other enormous uh, individual freedoms. We've always had sort of, hey, for us to do stuff beyond just the investing, but kind of the firm strategy or getting stuff done, it only works if people are very passionate about something and the rest gives them trust and freedom to explore it. And fortunately, that has worked out really well as a strategy for us from the early beginnings just in Norway to internationalizing through the, the Nordics to then going into European to be sort of a pan-European fund before most people did that. Then going to the US, not just to go like, oh, that's good for 
our founders, but really saying in the New York market, we think we can be competitive. We see that New York is as far from San Francisco as it is from London uh, and doubling down on that. Similarly saying, okay, we want to go multi, uh, multi-stage because we feel that sort of the European ecosystem is you know, building itself out and enriching and therefore there is room to support founders throughout their journey. And so I think the nice thing is even though the core stuff we always try to do with the same kind of culture and we believe in sort of the, that the art of investing is about mentoring people, developing them. I think, you know, the way we're looking at deals, I don't think has changed that much. So on the one end, you want to be sort of best in class in what is the core of, 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 of investing. And then at the same time, we have a lot of room for always innovating and uh, yeah, and doing doing stuff new. And so for, for me, this fund 10, there's a lot more emphasis on venture growth as well. And so the ability to write bigger checks, which I think is great. Also now in the recession where we've seen sort of the mega rounds collapse. And then I think there's room emerging again for sort of healthy Bs and Cs that are not so overpriced that you can't make big multiples on them anymore. And so it, it's great. It feels great to have a, a broader kind of strategy. Obviously, you need to then coordinate the pieces very well together. So we, we've spent quite a bit of time thinking about that and, and now enacting it. And then I would say, as has been happening in the last 10 years, where software is starting to hit on every kind of industry, I think we're seeing a nice number of newly emerging themes, you know, whether it was earlier on Web3 or on sustainability or on digital health. I think there's sort of big new areas where a lot of people on our team sort of individually are getting deeper know-how and knowledge and we're not sort of sticking to, oh, let's just do B2B uh, and marketplaces and, uh, and, 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 and keep focusing on that. You touched on something in that reply that I thought we have to talk about that because it's rare that on this show that we talk to uh, Series B and C investors and, and as you said, the mega rounds, you know, they were in the, <laughs> they were they were happening in the in the series B and Cs, and and thus you know in most of our conversations, all our seed investors have been able to say, well, it was really us, you know. <laughs> I, I was just happy <laughs> seeing valuations grow up, but I, you know, of course, I was temperate when I was telling my LPs about the valuation increase, and then and then people would rattle off names like uh, Axel Index, <laughs> and and so on. So now you're here, Mikhail. Tell us. How have you been talking to LPs about this? And and but maybe before that, let's start. How have you been talking about it in, internally? And and what have you kind of thought and done as a, yeah. as, a as a consequence of what? Has no, I, I, listen. I think that's that's a great question. And and it, the funny thing I would say is there have been sort of two trial runs already for this whole situation in 2019 and 2020, uh, before sort of the, the 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 real kind of big hit came at the end of 21, where. In 2019, I think the, the the industry was already sort of ablaze with, hey, we've been on a bull run now for almost 10 years. It kind of never lasts. You know, you need to be careful, et cetera, et cetera. So I think in 2019, we had already started debating this internally, and we had already started recommending to companies to bulk up their balance sheet uh, a bit and therefore also apply a bit more caution. And then, of, of course, in 2020, when COVID hit, you know, everyone went immediately into emergency planning uh, and 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 and. Uh, sort of a drama scenario. And then within, I would say two months for a lot of companies, it was all of a sudden like, no, this isn't bad. This is actually good and we're excited. And, and then we got into the whole era of, of sort of craziness. Um, so we've taken this internally to talk a little bit about that and to those moments and to, you know, from those of us who've been around in the 2008 great financial crisis and 
um, in, in 2001 in the dot-com bubble and say, you know what, what you thought was a hit in March 2020 wasn't at all. And so what we're going to face now isn't going to be like, oh, look how well we did in March 2020, but it's much more akin to those other two. That's one. Two, that what you've seen in 2021 and, 20, and 2020 is very far outside the normal. So don't go like, oh, we have a recession. We need to uh, sort of survive the recession and then we'll go back to the 2021 level. You know, when everything is up again, you'll be at the 2020, 2017 level, right? <laughs> and uh, by the way, yes, we'll have probably an intense crisis maybe for a year or two, but it can take six years, six or seven years to get back to the 2017 level. And so be prepared for that. And that's also fine. And I think one of the things you, you tell the people internally, if you look at a portfolio, the, I think the average sort of early stage portfolio loses 30% of their companies. And when we were in November, 2021, we'd lost none of our companies in the previous two funds, right? Uh, and uh, that is not normal. And we all need to realize that. And with the abundance of capital, also companies that weren't doing well enough or hadn't sort of fully hit product market fit would survive. And so what is likely to happen in the next two years is that maybe not a full third, given that with a bunch of money, companies have gotten stronger, but that a significant portion of companies in our ecosystem will die and where they would normally have died because they couldn't raise a series B, they might, might now die after, you know, having raised a hundred million or 200 million. Uh, that's going to be painful, but it's okay because what we do is entrepreneurship. We are risk capital. So it's not about, you can't have any miss, misses. If you have no misses, you probably don't take enough risk and you won't have any of the real big, big hits. And secondly, if you think about the math of your fund return model, obviously sort of everyone looked super well on paper in 2021, but we're, we're used to a J curve. So let's say if in 2021, for argument's sake, you're a five X on paper and now 2022 and three kind of hit, and you know, you have to down, uh, downgrade a number of your companies. You have to, some of them will die. If you have six value drivers in your fund and two of them are going to die and two of them in four years time from now will return only what they were worth at the end of 2021. And the other two will still double from there. You end with a 5X, which is a beautiful outcome, right? So the fact that things are going, if you've only seen portfolio values go up, you get very nervous for a portfolio value to come down. But you have to realize you have 10 to 12 years to run a fund. Normally, you have your losers faster than you have your winners. And the real winners will, at the tail end of what they do, still increase their value a lot. I remember with us in, in uh, Spotify, it took 10 years to get to a billion. Then the next year went to six. Then the next year went to 18. And then the next year went to 36. So the increase in value you had in the last year was as much as the 13 years before. So that's what I'm saying is like, don't get nervous. I know there you'll start seeing sort of numbers on the board and real casualties that you're not used to, but it doesn't mean, you know, the fund isn't working or that doesn't mean sort of that we have to, that we have to get nervous. And I think that is, a, that is a, is an important learning. So I jokingly to sort of the investors on our team say, Hey, you know what? You're really getting an investor MBA, right? You've seen two bull years and you have seen, <laughs> seen two insane years. Then you'll have two crisis years and then you'll have two recovery years. Like you have seen a <laughs> lot of situations. What I think, what I, if I read between the lines, that I think you're also saying is, is that, which is something we hear a lot in our in our podcast from more experienced investors, actually VC investors, is is consistency, right? The importance of consistency. Of you know, it's it's not about following the macro trends. It's, it's understanding these are macro trends. These this is the way the market behaves. There's, there's a level of consistency there, which I think is a great tip. But if I try to make it kind of 
actionable for many of our listeners who are more like less experienced emerging kind of kind of GPs. I think if you take that to the extreme, you become and I'm missing the English expression for this, but like when you have when you have donkeys and you want to take them around, you, you put those things so they have like blind eyes, right? So the the right. taking it to the extreme is is you're so consistent that you don't learn, right? <laughs> so to speak. How, you know, how do you advise, you know, the, the less experienced team members inside of Northstone to think about this and not be on one and two sensitive to market oscillations, on the other end, being kind of stagnant, non-learning, kind of irrelevant in the long run? No, no, but, but to me, those two things are not at odds with each other. I would say not panicking because of the market doesn't mean closing your eyes. I, I on, In the opposite, I would be like, hey, open your eyes and see really what is happening. And secondly, now what you do matters. Right, pretty much any investment you made early stage in twenty in beginning of twenty twenty one by the end of the year was going to be up, and whether you made a good bet or a bad bet, it didn't really really matter so much. But now, what you pick picks matters, right? So now, if you see a number of train crashes from up up close, you realize what can go wrong, and right, you start seeing, oh, you know what? Very capital intensive models are way more dangerous than the ones that are less capital intensive, and you know. Uh, an entrepreneur that doesn't change their course but doubles down is probably harder to back than someone who keeps iterating and you know interpreting the signals of what's going on. And, and so, so I think there's a lot of things there where uh, by seeing that now it'll influence your your future investing a lot. Two is there is now a reality where as an investor you can have a real impact on these companies. Right so before when capital was almost free. Yes, you could help with some good decisions. Yes, you could help with maybe some relevant investor introductions. But whether you did or you didn't, the general direction was clear. Right now, it's like helping with your experience, helping with your outside-in perspective, helping maybe with that one very relevant connection that maybe unleashes uh, uh, another check, maybe stepping up early and doing an internal. All these things can really drastically change the outcome of the companies in the portfolio. You can't do that with all of them. You you can't do that blindly because then you just keep pouring more money into stuff that is probably unsavable. And so judgment matters, right? So it's it's not just kind of close your eyes and pray. It's it's like be full on, but also don't don't be nervous. And it's and and again, it's like the, the whole idea that your investments can fail and it's okay, and that's why you do build up a portfolio, and that's why we are taking risks. I think that's super important to realize. I have a question. It's it's also on judgment <laughs> um, because I remember so clearly how all the way up until the crash actually came that we had, as you said, the continued discussion also in the media, also on LinkedIn, every VC saying, well, we're probably in a bottle bubble, but as long as it grows, it's the part of a bubble, right? It just keeps expanding and you don't know when it bursts. And for that reason, you, there's nothing you can do, but just keep on dancing. And, and I've been kind of thinking afterwards, well, that's true and it isn't, right? Because yes, if there's a, if it's three years, you obviously need to keep on dancing and you can't say, well, we won't do any deals for three years because we think they're too expensive. But there were a lot of deals done towards the end of you know, the, the, the bubble where I, I can only think that the, the VCs that have really been doing those late stage deals you know, were also very cognizant of, okay, this... We, we must be close to the burst now. And I'm super curious to hear how you're you're reflecting on it both now afterwards, but also if you can remember back to Jan Feb and, and say, hmm, when we did those big rounds back then, did we then do them and then tell the tell the, the, the founders, okay, you're getting this huge injection now. Makes a lot of sense. 
Uh, it's an important or an expensive deal for us, but we want to still be here. But we need to look at, you know, maybe we should brace for winter. You know, was it like that? How do you remember those times? I would say, I would say it's a mixed bag. I, uh, I think in general, and that's one of the things I try to discuss a lot now with, with the entrepreneurs I sit around the table with is human beings overread sort of signals, right? The, and therefore, if you're starting to see, you know, multiples being at 40x ARR, you start believing that, right? Even if you know, yeah, historic averages are more, maybe more like around seven. And yes, we are. And yes, but this is a great company. And yes, the market bears it. And yes, there's, so there's always a collective sort of part of a craze. Uh, and it's similar with, with any kind of sort of shortcuts you make, whether it's thinking about what sort of lifetime value over CAC ratios are good or how your channels are performing, et cetera, et cetera. So I say to kind of entrepreneurs, and it's not really an answer to your question now, but I say now is like, hey, make sure you reevaluate all the shortcuts in your business and see if in the new market circumstances, they still hold. Because you could think, you know what? Yes, this channel has always been my best channel. And maybe you have some shortcut calculation for lifetime value, but the lifetime value might have really kind of changed. So go re-examine all your prior notions. And I think, you know, as investors, we need to do that too. And we need to kind of look at what sort of, hey, what is true today? And what can we learn from what we thought was true then, but wasn't as true? So, so I think that's one. I think two is there is sort of this fundamental underlying vector of things getting more digital, more people being sort of wired, outcomes getting bigger, et cetera, et cetera. So, right? so when I started Adventure in Europe, a 300 million outcome was really, really big, right? Last year, if an outcome wasn't over 10 billion, it almost didn't count. I think that is madness, but I don't think the norm is still at 300, right? I think the norm is now probably more like a 3 billion, right? So, so I think you've got to balance these two things. You can't also kind of yank everything back and say, therefore, you know, all negative or all handbrake on you just kind of have to look realistically. And I think we've always tried to, to when investing, look at the business fundamentals as well. And are, are you building a healthy business? And are you just using capital to supercharge it? Or is it masking for real product love or real product market fit, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, even though you know, as a more experienced investor, or success isn't a success until there's an outcome. Obviously, if someone comes in after you and marks up your investment by 3x, you feel good. Obviously, if a company in your portfolio is valued over a billion, you feel good. Obviously, if, if something on paper is half your fund or twice your fund, you feel good. But yeah, you have to. And it's, I think it's nice so, because LPs ask me and say, you know what? Uh, I guess you now sort of have put the door, the lock on the door for investing. Or they say the opposite. And they say, you know what? I can see why this is the right point to start investing. I think timing the entry is really hard. And I don't think we're in the business of that because in the end, we get into companies where not like private equity, where it's about multiple arbitrage. The companies that we get into and that do well, go 100x in in, in, in their revenue and their scope, et cetera, in, in the journey we're on. So I believe less in sort of, you need to time the entry windows, but at the same time, we know for a fact, you need to time your exit windows because whether a company can IPO or not, or whether, whether a company get sold at a good multiple or a bad multiple is much more a function of the macro. And therefore, I think if you look at the company, at the, the funds that will have done well uh, in the in the investment cycle that we it was just behind us, is people who did exit the multiple. Mm -hmm. And people who just sat on paper value, they didn't, right? And similarly for companies, if you're now in, this, in, the, in the situation that you're forced to sell your company in 23, 
I don't think you'll do well. If you can hold out to 26 and if there's a window, you do well, right? So it's also about thinking about how do you bridge the cycles and how do you build towards it? And I would say, diversify your entry points, but concentrate your exit points. Uh, that's a really good point. Um, one final question before we need to stop the interview, unfortunately. I remember seeing when, uh, when I was prepping for this that you were reading Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. And I can't help but think that that's a pretty relevant uh, you know, book to, for VCs to be reading over Christmas here. Am I right in saying that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it comes to our job is art and science. And it is, it is, it is sort of the raw numbers and it is the, 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 the gut feel and it's, it's the, some of the realities and it is how big can the dream be? And I, you know, my partner PJ often says it very well, like a lot of people are looking when they're evaluating data, they're looking at what can go wrong. As a VC, you need to look at what can go right. And that's all. Remember that for Christmas. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and and and, ju and just like founders, we also tend to be quite optimistic. <laughs> that's that's why we are absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> On that note, we are approaching the end of the episode, and we always end with a quick fire round. The quick fire round is when we ask thirty to sixty second answer questions, and today we have our special uh, guest host asking them. JD from Facenotes. Michiel, are you ready? Yes, I am. First question, which VC that you know has a superpower and what is it? Ooh, I would say most of the VCs I know have great superpowers, so <laughs> it'd be hard to single one out. <laughs> what about, what about your, um, your, among your colleagues, if you had to pick one superpower that amazes you the most or amazed you the most the first time you kind of saw it in action, what would you name? Yeah, I, I would say what I really love, uh, as I just mentioned earlier, that PJ has this big ability not to see what something is, but what something can be. And then the discipline to always still focus on, will it get there? And if it doesn't, say no to the, at the last moment of the deal. In your view, what is the essence of venture capital and how do you relate to that as a firm? Yeah, I think the essence is supporting these exceptional individuals in outrageous dreams and help support them to step-by-step -step become reality by sort of adding part science, part art of inspiration and experience to it. What are you as a firm consistently good at and why? I would say we're good at human-centric venture capital. And that means that we're good in having real empathy for how hard and how exciting the journey is for a founder in being open, transparent with them, approachable, and as colleagues underneath, uh, between ourselves, uh, really help each other. Which firm do you consider to be the most promising emerging manager? Oh, and and what in your book is emerging? One to three, fund one to three. Fund one to three. Oi, oi, oi. That's a very good and difficult question. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. I mean, there's a lot of funds I really like, and I love how they do things. But I love the enthusiasm with which Cocoa is sort of going into the market and approaching founders, co-investors. Uh, so yeah, I, I, uh, I really wish to see them do well. 
I can only say thank you for mentioning our uh, our co-host for our Super Angel podcast. <laughs> there there <laughs> you go. We, we, just, we just launched the Super Angel podcast with uh, together with uh, Anthony. So <laughs> thank you. That's great. That's great. Awesome, Mikhail. I'm, I'm sure so I pissed off a lot of other people. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the beauty of it, right? We always try and end on that note. <laughs> yes, sounds good. Sounds good. <laughs> Thanks right. a million for joining us. Michael. Hey, yeah, awesome. yeah, really nice to chat to you guys and uh, end up sometime in, in person. Uh, yeah, I would love to hang out. That would be great. Thank you for listening to this episode of the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc.